Good morning. My faith was crushed this week. I'll confess to you that this happens somewhat routinely these days. And the next paragraph details some of the reasons why, and it mentions a recent disclosure of sexual abuse. So if you need to get ready or leave, or close your ears and hum for the next three minutes while I take the time to read it, um, believe me, I get it. So it could have been the article in The Atlantic by Adam Serwer, entitled The First Days of the Trump Regime, in which he argues that the president has interpreted the vote to acquit him as a writ of complete confidence installing him as a strongman leader, and that the complete acquiescence of William Barr to this vision issues in a new era of authoritarianism in our country. I think that this could be right. Once the weather gets warmer, I'm going to suggest that those who want to gather at the federal building downtown at noon on Fridays do so and sing hymns together. I think that this could be one way that we can resist whatever it is that we have now for our government. It's hard to resist something that you can't define, but singing hymns is just countercultural enough to suggest that something isn't right. It could have been the armed conflict in northern British Columbia between the Canadian government and the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs over an oil pipeline. The conflict between these two sovereign powers is incredibly complex. The conflict would have never happened if this stupid oil company, Coastal Gas Link in this case, had just followed the path that the hereditary chiefs had already approved. I don't have a ready response to this crisis happening a 40-hour drive away from us here in Washtenaw County. But it does remind me that while we may be entering a new phase in the demise of our democracy, any government, even one led by Justin Trudeau, is perfectly capable of stomping on the rights of people that I want to be in solidarity with. It could have been the fact that even in a week as cold as this one, all of the snow melted. It could have been any of those things, but it was the recognition by Larsh International in an internal report that their founder, Jean Vanier, had sexually abused six women, none of whom have the intellectual challenges that the Larsh communities so effectively support. It was that that did it. If Jean Vanier fits his life into the same pattern of disrespecting women that so many men have outlined, what even is the point? My faith was crushed like it has been before, like it will be again, and here I am in front of you with a sermon called Splendid Certainty. Now it's true that I titled the sermon before writing it, so maybe there's that. (laughs) And it's also true that this beautiful little thing called the lectionary, which we have been kind of following for epiphany, assigns the biblical texts entirely oblivious to current events. But it's also true that I have a little medical caveat when it comes to doubt, certainty, and faith. Some of you know, but probably most of you don't, 
that there are some cells in the front of my brain that didn't migrate to the back when they were supposed to, when I was developing in utero. This means I now have temporal lobe epilepsy. Thankfully, the seizures are very adequately controlled by the medicine. The interesting side effect that is germane to this sermon is that people with this type of epilepsy can be hardwired to believe in God. So my faith was crushed this week, but it bounced right back with an almost biological intensity. This might make me a good pastor, or not. <laughs> but it's the life that I lead. My body whispers quiet confidence, and I don't succeed in feeling doubt, at least in God, for very long. So in a sermon on certainty, I recognize that I might look at some things differently than other people, and that these reflections could be entirely irrelevant to you. But with some hope that different experiences and how we all experience faith are useful to all of us, I'm going to make bold to continue. I want to suggest two things this morning. Certainty is a part of faith. And the work of certainty happens in everyday life. The moment that we celebrate today, the moment of Jesus' transfiguration into glory, is a moment of certainty. It's a moment of clear confidence for the disciples as they recognize that Jesus is, in Mary Oliver's words, a beautiful person, but also someone else besides. And it's not just that Jesus is radiant in glory, but he is also joined by Moses and Elijah. You can pick your heroes of faith, but if you are the disciples, you aren't going to find stronger confirmation of your friend's transfiguration. <coughs> well, at least not until the cloud containing God's presence shows up and starts booming approval. This experience must have been the exact distillate of certainty for the disciples. They saw Jesus in glory. This glory is to be revealed about Jesus' connection to their faith when Moses and Elijah show up. It's confirmation that he is not what the Pharisees say that he is, but that Jesus, quite literally, is in conversation with the faith of Elijah and Moses. And then the bright cloud. They see how bright it is, even as they are overshadowed. God as light and dark, in balance and paradox, overwhelming their sense of sight. They smell petrichor, the musky fresh smell of the geosmin produced by actinobacteria, the smell that accompanies the coming of the rain. God in concert with the natural world, overwhelming their sense of smell. They taste the electricity in the air emanating from Christ's glory and the temporal displacement that has brought Moses and Elijah, the same electricity that infuses the Eucharist now. God in power over space and time, overwhelming their sense of taste. They hear God's voice, God in perfect tonal clarity and resonance, overwhelming their sense of hearing. They feel the ground as they hit it, 
so fearful that they have lost all orientation. God as overwhelming mystery. Sorry, God as awesome mystery, overwhelming their sense of touch. This is the certainty that they feel, a balanced paradox of light and dark, the supernatural and natural acting in perfect unity, complete power over time and space, height, width, and depth, complete clarity of communication, hearing, and understanding. I'm drawing this out because I want to rest here for a moment. The certainty that the disciples feel is a part of faith. It's not all of faith. We'll see in a moment the ways that it gets qualified and caveated. But certainty has its place. Certainty is not just about a connection to someone we can trust. Certainty here is about a transfigured Jesus. That which is certain is a beautiful person and someone else besides. This is a challenge to our contemporary understanding of certainty, a challenge to our faith. It's overwhelming. And then at the end of the overwhelm, touch restores them. One by one, their senses return. They start to feel functioning they start functioning again in an ordinary world, making their way down the mountainside, no longer afraid. This collection of fear and certainty is worth noting. At first, Peter is really excited about the certainty he feels, and he wants to contain it. He thinks, oh, great, Jesus, you're having a conversation with Moses and Elijah? Let me build each of you a shelter. I mean, I could build one shelter for the three of you so you can keep talking, but since what I'm really interested in is preserving this moment for myself, let me build you three separate ones. Peter probably didn't think that. But his three-shelter three approach is worthy of some mockery. God shows up right on time and saves Peter from himself by overwhelming the whole situation. It's clear that Peter is afraid of God, as well he should be. But I wonder if Peter isn't also at this point somewhat afraid of his prior excitement about the certainty of the transfiguration. Peter was given a great gift in witnessing this, but he immediately got overexcited about it. And that propensity to overreact is a hallmark of the disciples bumbling around after Jesus. So before I draw these reflections to a close, I want to reflect a bit more explicitly on what is certain in the Transfiguration. On one hand, the Transfiguration is a complete confirmation of everything about Jesus, in whom God is well pleased. But it is also only a confirmation of, of Jesus. Moses is not recorded saying, Yes, Jesus, your love, your way of love transcends my Ten Commandments, also given to me by God on a mountain. Moses and Jesus are connected here, and they are held together. 
The certainty that we have in Jesus is not transferable to a leader like Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau. And that certainty is also not transferable to a follower, even one like Jean Vanier. Our certainty is only in Jesus, not in any follow-on person or belief or statement. Certainty is something that we hold in our senses rather than our words. Christian certainty is only in Jesus, not even in peace or Mennonites or Alexander Mack. We could run wonder at this point if certainty is even worth having. It could be nice to have your senses overwhelmed, but it's not necessary, and the work of figuring out what to do is still up to us. We still go down the mountainside into the lives that we've had before. There is no necessary connection between certainty and faith. Certainty is a part of faith, but not all of it. Certainty is not at the center of faith. Isaac Viegas, in a column in the recent Christian century, speaks about the transfiguration in terms of the temptation to want to leave where we are to find some better future or some better reality somewhere else. He suggests that this impulse is behind Peter's desire to house Moses and Elijah. It's behind the work of many contemporary Christian thinkers to invent a better world. This fugitive ecclesia denies the importance of where we are right now and the goodness of the work set in front of us. Isaac says, transfiguration is an invitation to return to our communities and our lives with renewed attention and patience, awaiting the luminescence of the mundane, to attend to the present and wonder at the ordinary, to let this life astonish us with the sacred. It is good for us to be here, right here where we are, for this too is holy ground. The gift of the transfiguration is that it happened and that it can continue to illuminate our lives today by inviting us to watch for when life overwhelms us with the sacred. When we recognize that this space is also holy ground, we invite Jesus to excite us now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we have a community that will do this with us in song and sharing, we begin to create the grounds of resistance to whatever it might be that crushes our faith. So this is my last reflection. The power of community in terms of holding certainty and faith for us. Peter talks about how he actually saw Jesus. And actually seeing is something that he gives then to the people that he's talking to. And this this transference of witness traveled all the way down through all of Christianity. And it forms a community like ours. But in this community, we have many different approaches to certainty, to faith. One of the things that I think is beautiful about a community like this is that some of that, 
that certainty, that faith, is held together by our group. It's not a question of any individual working towards something. It is something that we hold together. Our participation together in community gives us certainty, gives us access to certainty, it gives us faith, it gives us access to faith. Even when these things are not immediately available to us, we hold them together.